So we have been, we've been studying the life of David, one of the most important figures in the Old Testament in the Bible. And as you recall, two weeks ago, we talked about David's sin with Bathsheba. And I remember I pointed out that that wasn't just some affair between the two of them. It really was an example of David overpowering her, taking advantage of her, and then having her husband killed. It was a despicable thing to do. Uh, we talked last week about Nathan, God's prophet, who um, really is an intervention into David's life, and he comes to repentance. But tonight, we're going to look at Psalm 51, which is the psalm that was written by David after Nathan the prophet confronted him. So this is what David wrote after last week's stuff happened. So I was thinking about this, I've been thinking about, you know, have you ever felt stuck in a relationship and you didn't know what to say? You ever been in a situation where you've, you've had to have kind of a talk about something or other, things have gotten awkward, and you just don't have the words to say? Wouldn't it be great if in those times you actually had a script that you could follow? that you actually had words that you could use when you don't know what words to say. And I was thinking about one of my favorite movies of all time, Say Anything. Has anybody ever seen Say Anything with John Cusack? Few. If you haven't, you need to go watch this movie. But I'll, I'll tell you a little bit about it. John Cusack is just this character. Here's a, it's a coming-of-age kind of teen comedy, but it's different than all those other teen comedies in that genre because... The characters in this one are like normal, awkward people. They're not like supermodels masquerading as high school kids. They're awkward. They're not, again, they're not like the prettiest people. And they're just kind of real. And, and I love this movie. Um, it centers around this guy, Lloyd Dobler. Lloyd Dobler is John Cusack's character. Maybe you've seen him in other movies. But Lloyd is a, kind of a, a nerdy guy, but he's a good guy. He's a good guy with a good heart. And... He really falls for this girl, Diane Court. And Diane is like, again, she's not really a beauty queen, but in that school she kind of is. And he uh, takes her out, and then he really kind of falls for her. And uh, the problem is her dad doesn't think that Lloyd is good enough for her. So her dad convinces Diane that she needs to break up with Lloyd. Things are going great, but... Her dad convinces her she's going to go off to college in England, and you just don't need to be um, tied to this guy, okay? And she loves her dad, reveres her dad, doesn't really want to do it, but she says, okay, but I, I don't even know what to say. What, what, I don't even know what to say to him. And he says, her, her dad says, here, take this pen, and, and hands her a ballpoint and says, you know, give him this pen. And she's like, Okay. So they, 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 you know, they, go, they get together, Lloyd and, and Diane, and they're sitting in his car. And she starts to try to have this conversation. And she doesn't really know what to say. She stumbles over her words. It's totally awkward. And so she hands him the pen. Later he tells his friends, I love this line, I gave her my heart. She gave me a pen. I gave her my heart, and she gave me this pen. <laughs> yeah, it's 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 awesome movie. You really got to watch this movie. But I, I think you know. Good night. Let, let me give you one little tip. If you're ever going to break up with somebody, 
say anything, but don't just give them a pen, right? I mean, it's just awful. But here's, here's the good news tonight. When it, comes to, when it comes to how do you come back to God when you've been far from him, here's the amazing thing. God doesn't make you come up with the words. He gives you good words to use. And that's what we have in Psalm 51. God's good words that we can use to come back to him. Let's read it together. Now I'm reading from the NIV. For the director of music, this is the the title, for the director of music, a psalm of David, when the prophet Nathan came to him after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. So that's not just my speculation, that's actually in the Bible. And here it goes. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions, wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you are proved right when you speak and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Surely you desire truth in the inner parts. You teach me wisdom in the inmost place. Cleanse me with hyssop, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins, and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God. And renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will turn back to you. Save me from blood guilt, O God, the God who saves me. And my tongue will sing of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips. And my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. In your good pleasure, make Zion prosper. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then there will be righteous sacrifices, whole burnt offerings to delight you, then bulls will be offered on your altar. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for these good words, and we pray that you would be with us now as we seek to understand these words that you've given us and seek through them to come to understand more about who you are and about your gospel. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Good words that God gives us. And the question tonight really is, what do you do with your guilt and your shame? And here's a couple points I want to make about this psalm. First, this psalm is not in the Bible to satisfy our curiosity about what David must have been feeling after Nathan the prophet came to him. That's surely an interesting question, 
What must have David felt like after his hypocrisy and his cold-heartedness was exposed? But that's not why this psalm is in the Bible, really. God gives us here good words. You see, this is in the book of Psalms. The significance of that, the significance of that is these are public words for God's people to use in their worship of him. Unless you think of worship as some sort of like kind of weird super spiritual thing, really, honestly, worship is relating to God as you should relate to him. Of course, the problem is there's a rupture in the relationship that sin has brought into the world. And so worship always has to involve how can our relationship with God be restored and healed so that we can relate to him the way he made us to relate to him. That's what worship is about. And God gives us here good words for his people to use. This isn't just to satisfy our curiosity about what David felt. The fact that this is in the Psalms means that these are public words for God's people to use. And that's huge. What it means is when you are far from God, when you feel that there's a cloud between you and God, you don't have to figure out how to fix it. God is the one who takes it upon himself to give you good words. Words that point you to his character, to his provision for your sin, and to his heart. And that's what we have here. See, this is a psalm. It's one of the songs that God gave his people to sing because Judaism, Christianity, are not just philosophies. They're about a relationship. And thus we get a psalm. Christianity, you see, is more than just about ideas. It's about living in rich relationship with God. And hear this. That means that when things get out of whack... You need to know how to come back because there's no relationship that doesn't at some point or other suffer some kind of tension or brokenness. And because God wants so much to be in relationship with his people, he doesn't just leave us wandering around trying to figure out how to find our way back to God. He says, look, let me tell you. Let me show you. Let me give you good words that you can take and try on yourself and use them when you don't know what to say. And I'll just say this, but I won't develop this tonight. But there's actually a lot of things you can learn about how to relate to other people as well from this psalm. In other words, if, you, if people are made in God's image, there's a lot of lessons to be learned from how you come back to God and the way he teaches us that we're going to look at tonight, there actually are a lot of applications you could make for your relationships with other people. But we don't have time to talk about that. You just think about that. All right, so what do we get from this psalm? Five lessons that we're going to look at tonight about how to come back to God. What are these lessons that we learn um, from this psalm about how to do that? The first is God's character revealed is the basis for approaching him. Now, if you've been hanging out with RUF for a while, hopefully you've heard this. But let me just say it really clearly tonight. Our God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God who became man in the person of Jesus, 
who lived among us, died on a cross and was resurrected and even now lives to intercede for his people. This God is a God of covenant love. Now that's a special word, covenant. It's brought out here in verse 1 where it talks about according to your unfailing love or some other translations say steadfast love, but it's a Hebrew word, hesed. And hesed is a great word. It basically means God's love of commitment to his people. There is this term in the Bible, in the Old Testament, it's talked about a lot. There's a few places in the New Testament as well. This word called covenant. Covenant is not a contract where like you and I will negotiate and you promise to do this and I promise to do that and we haggle until we come to a mutual agreement. A covenant is different than that. A covenant is something where the sovereign one dictates the terms, both of what he will do and what the underling who he's making a covenant with will do. And in the Bible, this is what a covenant is. God says over and over again, not just in words, but in pictures and all kinds of ways, I will be your God and you will be my people. Walk before me as my people. That's the heart of the covenant. Now, what's interesting about the way this psalm starts is the cry for mercy where he says, have mercy on my God, on me. Have mercy on me is generally a phrase in this day and age when this psalm was written that you would use for somebody that you don't know. Have mercy on me, a cry that you would make to somebody that you don't really know. And yet it's connected here to have mercy on me, O oh God, according to your unfailing love. And here's the heart of what this means. This is a psalm for people who belong to God who need mercy. And what does that mean? That means that it's normal and regular for God's people to sin. Now, that may not be a shock to you, but for some of you, that may be the freeing word that you need to hear tonight. That God put this in the psalms because this is a regular need that his people have. Even the people that belong to him, that know about his hesed, his steadfast covenant love, they themselves are not very steadfast. And they turn away from him. And he knows that, and he doesn't want them to stay in that condition. So he gives us these words. Words that you could take. You could start right here and say, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. In other words, the beginning of coming back to God is to remember who he is. And the best way to remember who he is is to look to his word where he has revealed who he is. And primarily, the way this psalm starts is reminding us about his faithful covenant love, his commitment to love people who need mercy. Not just initially, but always. God's people are those who belong to him and who regularly need his mercy. So you're a good company if that describes you. And the second thing that we want to see here is when you see that, who God is, his covenant love, his steadfast love, his faithful love, his great compassion, it also talks about here. When you see that and get that and start with that, it actually makes your brokenness and your sin look even worse in your eyes. And that's okay. Because your sin is even worse than you think. 
It's one thing I know whenever I meet with a student or I meet with anybody, and I know it about myself and I know it about everybody in this room, that you're worse than you think you are. Now, that may freak you out. It doesn't freak me out. That's just true, right? And I know that you're worse than you think you are. You're not only just worse than I think I am. Like Chris Rock says, you know, when you meet me, you don't meet me. You meet my representative. There's a lot of wisdom in that. It's true of every one of us. But here's the the crazy thing. You're not even honest enough with yourself. But God knows who you are. And one of the ways that you will figure out who you are is by looking at who he is. John Calvin, one of the, you know, a great, great theologian. I know not everybody likes everything he said. He gets a bad rap fairly sometimes, but I will say this is one of, the, one of the best things you can learn from Calvin. He said that there are two things that knowledge consists in, the knowledge of God and the knowledge of man, and they are inextricably linked. You can't really understand yourself by starting with yourself. Why? Because you're made in the image of God. And when you look at yourself, you're looking at yourself broken, wounded in so many ways, not only by your own life and your own experiences, but by sin. You're not who you were meant to be. And it's hard to figure out who you are unless you look to who God is. And looking at who God is helps you understand more of who you are. And listen, we're worse than we think we are. And you see that here. Verse 4 is a very interesting verse. And a lot of people kind of struggle with this. When, you, know, you know what he did. He basically raped Bathsheba. And then he had her husband killed. And then he covered it up in, in, in just really cold-hearted, shameless ways. And then he has the audacity to say in verse 4, Against you and you only, O God, have I sinned. And you're like, what the heck? No, he sinned against Bathsheba. He sinned against Uriah, the Hittite, one of his loyal, mighty men. He sinned against all these people. How can he say this? Here's what's going on. When he sees who God is, the God of covenant, steadfast love, the God of great compassion, when he sees that God and he sees that he has sinned against that God, it so overwhelms him. It so overwhelms him that he can think really of nothing else. Now, does that mean he didn't sin against other people? No. In a sense, you could think of this as hyperbole. It's not exactly hyperbole. This is really, he's not exaggerating for effect. This is really the ache of his heart. That my sin, the fact that I sinned against you, O God, dominates the landscape. And honestly, Sinning against people made in your image is just another way of sinning against you. It's not just that I hurt these people. It's that I usurped your place, O God. When David begins to understand, see, that's what Nathan helps him to understand. If you remember from last week, Nathan comes to him and doesn't just say, hey, you killed that guy. No, you remember the story he tells Think of this, this farmer that had this sheep that was like one of his own children. And then this other guy who didn't care at all took that sheep and killed it and prepared it for food for a guest. And David was enraged. He was incensed. And he said, that man should die for doing this. And Nathan said to him, you're the man. That's what you did. That's what you did. You played God. And when he sees that, He sees that his sin just didn't on the surface 
You know, like sometimes you'll talk to people and they're like, well, I never killed anybody. You know, I don't need Jesus. I never killed anybody. And I say, well, yeah, but you, 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 when was the last time you played God? Because the Bible would say that even killing somebody is really a symptom of playing God. Saying, I don't need God. I am God. I'll do whatever I please. And that's what David comes to understand. And when we see sin for what it really is, and we agree with God's judgment on what it is, then finally we're set free from pretending and trying to make excuses. And that's what happens. Look at verse 4. I've sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you, O God, are proved right when you speak and justified when you judge. What he's saying is, I see my sin so clearly that I will not make any excuses now. I will honor you as judge in saying, you are right, O God. You are right, and I have no excuse. And when we're set free from making excuses, then we can finally embrace the true freedom that comes from casting our hope completely on God rather than our own best efforts. I don't know how to explain this to you, but I'm going to try. As long as you're trying to pretend that you're not as bad as you really are, you are enslaved to having to keep up that illusion to yourself and to everybody else. The points at which you are still trying to hold on to a bit of righteousness are the points at which there is deep slavery in your life. It's just true. Only when you come clean with God will you really find freedom. And here's the thing, for religious people, what they mostly need to come clean about is about their good deeds not really being good. Here's what I, here's what I mean. There's a, a great guy named David Dixon. I think I included this quote on a, an outline recently, but I didn't bring it out. I want to tell you this story. This guy, David Dixon, he's one of the guys that wrote this thing called the Westminster Confession of Faith. If you ever heard that of that document, or you've heard, you know, what is the chief end of man? He's one of the guys that put that document together. It's, it's worth reading. It's a pretty, it's pretty great summary of what the Bible teaches about various things. But on his deathbed, he was asked, how is it with your soul? This is one of the things the Puritans did. They regularly would sit around at people's um, bedside as they were dying and record all of their statements. They felt like they were closer to God and had more clarity about what really mattered as they got close to the end. And so they would sit and ask them questions. And they asked him, how is it with your soul? And here's, I love his quote. He said, well, I've taken my good deeds and my bad deeds and I've thrown them together in a heap. I fled from both of them to Christ and in him I have peace. Do you know how radical that is? Most people I know would say, well, I've, I've, I've looked at my good deeds and my bad deeds, and my good deeds are outweighing my bad deeds, so I think I'm pretty cool. I think I'm just okay. You know, Charles Wesley, the great hymn writer, one point was, thought he was on his deathbed, and a pastor came to visit him and said, Charles, do you hope to be saved? And he said, well, of course I do. And the guy asked him, upon what basis? And he said, well, my good endeavors. Upon my good endeavors, I try hard, is how we would say it, because I meant well. And the guy, the pastor, shook his head and went away sad. And Charles Wesley wrote in his diary, what? Would he rob me of my good endeavors? What else do I have? But let me tell you, the message that transformed the world in the 1700s, in this revival movement we call the Great Awakening, was primarily this message. 
You will never find freedom. You will never find peace until you repent, not just of your bad stuff. Everybody tries to say they're sorry about their bad stuff. Christians, real Christians, say they're sorry about their good stuff. Now, I know that seems kind of crazy, but you know this verse in the Bible in Isaiah chapter 64, where it says that our righteous deeds, our righteous deeds are like filthy rags. It's actually the word for a menstrual cloth, a used menstrual cloth. It's not a pleasant image at all. Is that the way you think of your righteous deeds? If you don't think of your righteous deeds as being like a dirty menstrual cloth, you're far from understanding the gospel. Because here's the thing. What really separates religious people from Jesus is their goodness. And thinking that they just need a little help, a little extra credit. But no, you need everything. And the words that God gives us here to bring us back to sanity, to restore relationship with him, involves involves seeing that even your righteousness is a way of avoiding your need for grace and mercy. George Whitfield uh, preached this famous sermon. I was helping my little boy. He's working on a project about the Great Awakening. And as Wendy was like, man, Kevin talking about the Great Awakening, about church history. I love this stuff, and I love to talk about this. One of his most famous sermons was from this passage in Jeremiah where um, peace, peace, say the false prophets. They say peace, peace, when there is no peace. False prophets are those who say everything's fine when it's not fine. And George Whitfield has this amazing sermon where he says, you know, I cannot say peace, peace to you, my hearers, until you repent, not just of your bad deeds, but of your righteousness. Even your splendid deeds need to be repented of. Even your repentance needs to be repented of. Collapse upon grace alone. As long as you're thinking that it's grace plus what I do to make sure I hedge my bets, you're not free. You're not free. True freedom comes from owning that God is right when he judges. And here's what he says. Your righteous deeds are like filthy rags. Will you honor God and honor him and say, yes, I agree? That's when religious people wake up, when they repent of their righteous deeds. Lesson number two. Believe me, I'll go faster through these others. Lesson two. God's grace allows us to actually take that honest look at our sin. And I love there's all these different images. It is interesting. The Bible doesn't just use one image to talk about sin. It uses lots of different ones. And even in our day and age, some people are uncomfortable with that word because they've just, it's sort of just been used like, oh, you're a sinner. Like, and we're like, we don't want to use that word. But let me tell you, let me think of it this way. Sin is, of course, breaking the rules, but the Bible wants to go so much farther than that, say, primarily it's about rupturing a relationship. It's not just about breaking the rules. It's not just about surface things that you do. It's about rupturing a relationship, and that rupture goes deep. Now, here in this passage, we see images like we need cleansing, we need covering, We need freedom from guilt. Look at verse 3. I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. That's the language of, I can't get this out of my mind. And maybe one of those images will connect with you more than others. For some people, they're like, yeah, I just, I feel like I need to be cleansed. Or others might say, I really feel like I'm trapped and I'm enslaved and I just can't get past. I can't forgive myself. People say that sometimes. And I say, I think what you mean is that your guilt is always before you. Have you felt that? Have you known that? We need all these things. 
We need cleansing. We need freedom from guilt. We need our sin to be blotted out. Sometimes you don't know what you need until you see what God promises to give. Do you know that? Sometimes you can determine what you actually need by looking at what God promises to give. Well, one other thing I'd say about this. You have to own, you have to own that sin is not a freak occurrence out of character on the surface of your life, but is really who you are. Look at verse 5. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. A lot of people struggle with that. They're like, oh, that's just so morbid. And, you know, I, all I would say is they've never had babies, <laughs> you know, because you don't have to teach babies how to be selfish and completely self-absorbed. You don't, right? It comes pretty naturally. And the Bible understands that. And the Bible says, look, you're, it's not like you're this perfect person and then every once in a while you kind of screw up out of character. You do these things. No, that's who you are. And if you don't believe the Psalms, believe Jesus. He says it's out of the heart that flow all the issues of life. And he, and he, and he criticizes and he says he blasts those who clean the outside of the cup but neglect to deal with the inside. Right? David gets that in verse 6. He says, surely you desire truth in my inward parts. You desire me not just to be clean on the outside. You desire coherence in my life. You desire who I am on the surface to be who I am inside. And you expect and desire purity all the way down. And you can't create that. You can't make that happen. And that gives us the next lesson. True repentance brings a longing for real change. See, David just doesn't say, forgive me, forgive me, forgive me. Forgive me is intermingled with change me, help me. They go hand in hand. When real repentance has come to you, and, and I will tell you, in, in Acts, the book of Acts, it says that repentance is a gift. It's a gift. It's not something you wump up. But if it comes to you, cry out to God for the gift of repentance. And if it comes to you, you'll know that it's real if it comes with a longing to be changed, not just a longing to get away with something. This is what David says, right? Look at verse 6. You teach me wisdom. You desire truth in the inward parts. Cleanse me and I'll be clean, right? He says in verse 7, but look down in 10. Create in me a pure heart. Don't just cleanse me. Give me a pure heart. Renew a steadfast spirit in me. Verse 12. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. I don't just need to be cleansed now. I need a willing spirit to sustain me. I need your grace every hour. Not just now. Not just in this crisis. And I love this. People always miss this in verse 12. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. I can't tell you how many times people quote that verse and what do they say? Restore to me the joy of my salvation. But you know, that's actually a very different thing. What David's asking for is for you to restore to me the joy that came from knowing that salvation is yours, O oh God, and you've given it to me. It's not just give me feelings. He's not just praying for happy feelings. Make me happy again. I've been sad. Make me happy again. Give me, restore the joy of my salvation. Restore to me that mountaintop that I felt at camp. Give it back to me. That's not what David's praying for at all. He's saying, give me the joy that comes from knowing that you're the one who has saved me. It's not just feelings disconnected from doctrine. It's actually connected to it. And then David asked God to grant him a willing spirit. 
Why? Because delighting in God's law, delighting in it, not just grudgingly obeying it, is the key to fighting temptation. How about lesson number four? Repentance, even being honest about your sin, is not just about groveling. And that's, that's where I want to go show you this next. Repentance is repentance in hope and faith. Theologians say that faith and repentance are two sides of the same coin. Real repentance is always repentance and faith. Why? Because for you to come to God, come back to God, you have to believe that he's kind and gracious to those who come to him. You can't really repent unless you believe that God is a safe place for you to run. And true faith is always a repentant faith because if you're looking to God, then you're always aware of how far you fall short of the kind of person he wants you to be. Faith and repentance are two sides of the same coin. So repentance is not groveling. Repentance is delighting in the God of the gospel and his grace. Um, I love verse 6. I'll just jump down here to verse 6. Now, in the NIV, it says, um, you teach me wisdom in the inmost place. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy. Here's the interesting thing. All of these in the Hebrew are future tense. But in a lot of the translations, they make them imperatives. It's like asking God to do this. It's not so much asking God to do this. What he's doing in the psalm is he's rehearsing what God has promised to do. He's filling his heart with the joy of the promises of God. So, so what he's saying more, more literally is, you will cleanse me, you will teach me wisdom, and I will be clean. You will wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. The emphasis in the Hebrew here is on the promise of God that will be true. He's, he, so if you take these words, you not only need to take his words saying, Lord, I've sinned against you, have mercy on me, but you also need to take these words, Lord, you will cleanse me. You will make me whiter than snow. This is why repentance is not groveling. Repentance is not just taking the first half of the psalm and saying, oh, I've really screwed up and I feel really bad and I need to be cleansed, I need to be forgiven, and ending there. Repentance goes on and says, Lord, fill me with faith in your promises. And let me try these words on. Lord, help me in my unbelief. I believe, but help me in my unbelief. I believe that you will make me whiter than snow. Let me even hear myself say the words, and may you send your spirit to testify with my spirit that those words are real and true and that that is your promise that can be relied on, right? And then he asks for huge things because what God wants, he promises to give us. It's, it's, it's great. Look at verse 6. He says, surely you desire truth in the inward parts. And then in verse 10, he asks him for it. You want truth, you, you desire truth in the inward parts. If that's what you desire, then God, that's what you have planned to give me. Give it to me. There's a boldness that comes from knowing what God desires and knowing that God is generous. We can hope for a future we don't deserve. We can ask for huge things. And finally, when you begin to understand this, you can't keep this kind of experience to yourself. I love the way this psalm ends. 
The psalm ends with worship and prayer. Now you look at verse 13. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will turn back to you. And you might think he's kind of bargaining with God. Like, God, forgive me and then I'll tell people about you. Like, okay, if you forgive me, if you restore me, then I'll become an evangelist or I'll become a missionary or something. That's not what he's saying. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is when you do this, I'm not going to be able to keep quiet about it. When you give me the joy of experiencing not only coming clean with you, but being filled with faith in your promises, when you give me that experience, I'm going to have to tell everybody. Right? You heard me tell that story about my friend Scott Rowley. Maybe it's, it just is a story i got to tell again. He, he had met with some people, a, a guy who, wanted, who was thinking about becoming a Christian, and he goes and meets with my friend Scott, who was the pastor at this church, and he says, you know, I really am interested in becoming a Christian, but I don't want to have to tell people about Jesus. I just am not really into this whole sharing my faith thing. And so my friend Scott said, well, you know, you don't have to tell people about Jesus for Jesus to love you. His love for you is not based on what you're going to do for him. It's based on his love for you. And then this guy left. And a while later, a mutual friend of theirs said to my friend Scott, man, what did you tell that guy? And Scott said, what do you mean? Well, he's just telling everybody about Jesus. So Scott called him back into his office and said, okay, what's the deal? The last we talked, you know, you said you didn't want to become a Christian because you didn't want to tell people about Jesus. And the guy said, Scott, when you told me that I didn't have to tell anybody about Jesus for Jesus to love me, I just had to tell everybody. (laughs) Right? See, that's the heart of this. Like, you will cleanse me and I will be whiter than snow. Can you really get your heart around that? I know, you know, I think if we're honest, if, if you guys have been grown up in Christian settings, and I know a lot of you have, I just think that that is so difficult for us to believe that that could ever happen or that could ever be true. I just think most people feel like God sort of looks at us and he's continually disappointed in us and he's not really, really glad that he invited us to be part of his family because we disappoint him all the time. That's how most religious people think. But if your heart could be filled with the knowledge that you will be whiter than snow, beyond what you can even get your imagination around, and if that really started to set you free, believe me, people would know about it. So the the fact is, you know, a lot of people think the problem, the reason we don't share our faith is because we don't know how, we don't know the right techniques or whatnot. No, the fact is we're just not very excited about the gospel. But if you have this experience of coming clean with God and believing his word and rejoicing in these promises, man, people are going to know about it. Jack Miller, a guy that I think the world of, who's passed away now, was a pastor to Tim Keller for a while, even though you may not know Jack's name. But he had this great thing. He said that evangelism is just one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. And that's it. This psalm shows you and teaches you how to find bread. It takes you by the hand, as it were. And then the final point. David gets the true point of the sacrificial system of the Old Testament here. Now, what's interesting, the last two verses seem to be added on after David and seem to reflect a time at which the temple maybe was in disarray, potentially an addition that happened during the exile, which shows to show that this psalm was being used in the exile. And at that point, 
there was a longing for the temple to be restored and for worship to be restored. But of course, we know from the rest of the story that Jesus is the true temple. And you know what's so great about that? It doesn't matter whether you're in Jerusalem or not. It doesn't matter whether you're in exile in Babylon, whether you're away from your family, away from your home church. Jesus, the true temple, is the one who brings to completion everything that all of these sacrifices were pointing to. Now, you can go read the book of Hebrews, particularly chapter 7, and this is the point it'll say, that the sacrificial system had built into it a message that a lot of the Jewish folks didn't get. But it was this. These animal sacrifices were never intended to fully deal with your sin. How do you know that? Well, because you've got to keep doing it over and over and over again. The fact that the sacrifices had to be repeated, the book of Hebrews says, shows that they were never intended to fully deal with the sin problem. Instead, they were to point us to God's commitment to deal with our sin problem and his commitment to provide what was needed in Jesus, the true temple. You know, uh, in that Old Testament temple, into the Holy of Holies was this area where all the high priest would go once a year to, to spread blood on the altar for the people's sins. And do you know what separated that area from the rest of the temple? Huge curtain. Not like a curtain like you think, but like huge, like, you know, 40 feet high, several feet thick. And embroidered on it, embroidered on it, was a sword and palm trees. You know why? You remember what happened in Genesis when sin came into the world? What happened to Adam and Eve? They were kicked out of the garden. They were kicked out of the presence of God. And what was left was an angel with a flaming sword to show that the only way to get back into the presence of God was if someone went under the sword. And when Jesus died on the cross, do you remember what happened to that curtain? It split from the top to the bottom. The way has been opened by Jesus, the true temple, who embodies everything. This, this psalm, I'll make this last point, this psalm starts out with the language of being an outcast. Have mercy on me. I'm cast out away from you. Have mercy on me. But in verse 10, it, it literally says, uh, sorry, uh, verse 8, let me hear joy. And gladness. Derek Kidner, Old Testament scholar, says the language here is the kind of rejoicing that an outcast would hear when they welcomed them back in. That what this psalm is promising is that you can get back in. The deepest longing of your heart actually is not just to be cleansed. Cleansing is a means to an end. God didn't just make you to be clean. God made you to get in, to have access with him. And Jesus opens that way by his blood. That curtain has been torn because Jesus went under the sword. Therefore, this promise that you will be whiter than snow, it's been sealed with the death of Jesus. You can count on it. Let's pray.